0: All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name's Frank. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new here, I'm really glad you're here. We're in a series where we're learning how to study the Bible, and that sounds kind of weird, Um, uh, but we're we're learning not only how to study the Bible, but we're going to study the book of Colossians. And what what I I know is, because it happened to me, is that many people, they, they surrender to Christ. They're excited to learn what they're going to learn, and somebody hands them this book and says, here, figure this out. And they're never really taught how to, how to mine for the gold that's in this book. And so um, about every eight or nine years or so, I usually teach a series on how to read the Bible. <clears throat> and I don't know, maybe you've picked up this book and you just felt lost. Maybe it was just trying to find the verses that everybody's talking about. Or you realize that once you find the verse, that's when the frustration really starts. You know you love Jesus, but this book is... Sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. Then someone like me tells you that without the Holy Spirit, it won't make any sense to you. And then you begin doubting your faith because you're like, how come I don't understand? I'm supposed to have this like encryption key that unlocks everything. And and you start thinking, if I really had the spirit, maybe this book wouldn't be this confusing. And you see other people who seem to just pick up the book and they devour it and they they develop these deep truths and they mark up their Bible and they have it memorized and they seem to understand it and you're looking at them going, what in the world is going on? I know I love Jesus. I know I surrender to him. Why am I struggling so much to understand this book? My guess is, is that say had somebody teach them how to look at this book. That they had somebody show them how to pan the river and look for the gold that everybody else seems to be cashing in. You see, I know you wanna believe the gold is there, but you wonder, maybe it's just not there for you. Maybe everybody else is just gonna figure this book out and you're not. And maybe when it comes to Bible study for you, you sort of stop doing it because it seems like if there is gold, it hasn't really been revealed to you. That's why this series is so important. Because Bible study can be very frustrating. We don't talk about it. We don't come to church and go, man, this is really hard to understand. Although Peter did say that Paul's letters were hard to understand. I think if we're really honest in this room today, our Bibles often sit on the shelf or maybe in the back seat of our car and plays little or no role in our day-to-day lives because we just don't get it. We can do devotionals. We can participate in small groups. We can depend on other people to teach us. But when we open God's word, we we don't really hear from God. And what's worse, we don't even know where to start to fix it. And worse than that, some of us have felt that way for over 30 years and never talked about it. This book becomes a symbol of our failure to really walk closely with Jesus. So we just leave it on the shelf like a good luck charm and somehow it makes us feel better but we feel defeated in the very place where we should feel the most encouraged. I wanted to do this series because what I just described to you was my experience for years. No one showed me how to read the Bible. Yes, there's another reason I didn't read the Bible. Deep down, I didn't like all that it said. I figured if I read the Bible, there were probably some things that this book would tell me to stop doing and I didn't want to stop. Somehow I thought I could actually go in front of God and claim that I didn't fully understand, therefore I'm not responsible. My loophole with God was going to be that I didn't understand. But part of understanding the Bible, and this is critical, part of understanding the Bible before you ever start trying to read it is to have a heart ready to submit to the truth, no matter what the truth is. It requires a submissive heart, a willing spirit, a desire to really know, a bit of work to find the treasures, and then the hardest part, choosing to obey before you know what you're agreeing to obey to. Bible study for me changed when I changed. Ask God every time you pick up this book to give you the heart that you need to be a submissive learner. Hold my hand, God. Lead me through your words of truth. Your servant is listening. I'm ready to submit. You see, we're frustrated because we don't really know how to read the Bible. We don't know what to look for in the Bible. We, We may not want to know what's in the Bible, and we Certainly don't want any of those things bad enough to actually work for it. Today I want us to focus on looking at two things: how to listen to God's Word and how to begin looking at God's Word. We've talked about the four C's. To study the Bible, one way to approach it is to look at four C's. Okay, the first C content. What does the word say? What do I see? like a detective at a crime scene. Don't try to interpret it. Don't try to solve the crime. Don't try to figure it out. What do I see? Content. Context. What did this mean to the first century audience? What were they understanding? Because this book, first and foremost, is written in the first century, by first century people, to first century people. And then how do I move it forward? How many of these truths apply to me today? And then after that, How do I change? What what part of me needs to die to apply this truth in my life? But here's what I want you to think about today. How badly do you want to hear? How badly do you want to see what's in God's word? Are you desperate? Do you have to know? Because when you open that book with a heart that says, God, I have to know. He begins revealing to you through the Holy Spirit things that you would not otherwise know. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God every time you open this book, or are you opening this book trying to validate the kingdom of you? When it comes to listening and seeing, I think of two desperate men, Monet and Beethoven. Monet was a founder of French Impressionist painting. He had a gift for seeing things visually. His talent was in the subtleties of color. He was able to use color like no one's ever used before, He could see in colors what others had missed. He began to see light in a new way. His paintings were famous for the the way he used light. It was much more natural, much more normal, much more appropriate than what had been painted before. They were called impressions because the work at first was heavily criticized because it looked like it wasn't complete. So they called his work almost derogatory as an impression. It's almost a painting, It's almost real, but it's not complete. He was gifted by God to paint what he could see, and he saw things the way no other artist had seen before. What others saw as incomplete, Monet saw as a masterpiece. And just when his career was peaking, his vision begins to fail the very gift God had given him to see things new and differently, it seemed God was taking it away. And as Monet got older and older, he became more and more desperate to try to see. Beethoven had a gift for composing. God gave him a gift of hearing music. Let me just go back to, let me show you this slide. These are the same pictures, 30 years apart. Monet lost his vision. He couldn't see what he wanted to see. He, he painted the first painting on top in 1899. He painted the second, is that right? 18, yeah, okay. And then he painted the second one 30 years later. The same bridge and he can't even see it. Lost his vision. Beethoven, a gift for composing. God gave him a gift of hearing music that no one else could hear. It was in his head. And he was given this stubborn will to compose what he wanted to compose and not what everybody said they wanted. He had perfect pitch. He could hear what other people could not hear. The very gift God gave him early in his career, he began to go deaf. And eventually he became completely deaf and still composed music in his head. He could hear it. You have to ask God, what's up with that? Why does someone with a gift for painting become blind? And why does someone with a gift for music become deaf? It doesn't make sense to me. Why wouldn't God give Monet perfect sight and Beethoven perfect hearing? Can you imagine their frustration? Monet desperately wanted to see, but nothing's clear and the difference between his painting of the bridges and the Japanese garden. Beethoven desperately wanted to hear, but everything's silent. But yet, many would say it was their falling senses that made them desperate and that actually made them great at what they did. As Beethoven began to lose his hearing, he began to change his style. He's less concerned about what other people thought. He put emotion into his music, he abandoned all the rules, and he became a revolutionary. Both amazing and shocking, the music world. He stood against the tide of classical music and he created what God had put in his head. He was desperate to get it out because he knew he couldn't hear much longer. And it changed the direction in which it flowed. Most believe none of that would have happened had he not become desperate. Rather than giving up, their frustration fueled their greatness. They had a sense of urgency, It drove their masterpieces. And when it, becomes, when it comes to Bible study, we're the same way. It's our frustration that drives our greatness. There will be moments when we desperately want to hear from God and see what God has to tell us, and he's going to want us to persevere. Like Beethoven, we have to become desperate to hear the Holy Spirit And like Manet, we have to become desperate to see what the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us in the Scriptures. It is your desperation to hear, to see God in the Holy Scriptures, that determines the persistence and the effort that you'll go through to find the gold that's in the book. And you know because you've been there before. As you persevere, God reveals to you something new, and it inspires you to want to see more and more and to keep looking and looking. It becomes like flecks of gold in the river. When you see the flecks of gold coming down the river, you know the nuggets are nearby. Christ followers do not read this book alone. As Christ followers, we have the Holy Spirit to give us guidance, and we can pray that the Holy Spirit will give us a desperation to get to know him and to study the words that he put in the book. Listening to that advice, not only reading the Bible, but listening to the advice that comes from the Holy Spirit while you're reading is critical to Bible study. It reminds me of a friend of mine who had only one eye due to a childhood accident. He couldn't see depth at all. He only had one eye. He told me a story once about how he and his wife were driving on a country road, and she knew he couldn't see everything. don't know why she wasn't driving, but anyway, he was driving. He can't see everything. They rounded a turn and she said, honey, do you see the deer on the road? He said, yes, thank you. And then he wrecked the car and ran over the deer. Right in front of him. He saw a deer. He didn't realize that she was using the word in plural. He'd not seen all that there was to see. He didn't take time to fully understand the advice that he was given. And in in that response, he wrecked his situation. Okay, so when we listen to God's Word, we're not just reading the text. We're listening to the author show us what's in the text. The Bible says if you try to read this book without the Holy Spirit, it's going to make no sense to you. If you either don't have the Holy Spirit or you don't listen to the Holy Spirit, it's not going to make any sense to you. And if we try to read the Bible without God showing us what's in the book, we're going to wreck our lives too. A key to Bible study is not to just pay attention to what you see, but to listen to what the Holy Spirit reveals to you that you do not see. When you read the Bible, you are looking, but you're also listening. Never do one without the other. So how do we listen to God's Word? There's seven ways that we listen. Now, eventually, probably in the next two weeks, I'm going to give you a a bookmark that has all this stuff on it you can keep in your Bible. Some people actually still have theirs from nine years ago. I don't want you to get lost in this, but I want to talk about how we approach Scripture. So right now we're talking about how do we listen. When we see Scripture, how do we listen? The first thing is we have to listen thoughtfully. We have to think through the text, even a text we know very well. In fact, the text that you know very well, you have to force yourself to slow down and act like you've never seen it before. If we listen thoughtfully, we'll hear what God has for us. Each word and idea is there for a specific purpose and a specific reason. You have to unpack all of it. No word in the Bible is there by accident. Second is we have to listen thoroughly. In order to understand the text, you have to bombard it with questions. Main questions. Who wrote it? Why did they write it? Who read it? What were the main characters? What's happening? Why did they write it? What's wrong with the picture? What is the author saying? Where? Where is the writer when he wrote this text? Where were the original readers? Where is the text taking place? When was it written? When were the events taking place? Why was it written? Why did this author sit down and write this down? Why is this included in Scripture and other things are not? Why did God think it was so important to put this in there? The events that happened, why did they happen the way they did? Not every text will answer every question. But we have to interrogate the text with our questions. When you begin to ask the Holy Spirit to show you these things, you're on the edge of a breakthrough. Bombard the text with your questions. We have to listen repeatedly. Read a text over and over. Read it with emphasis on different words. For example, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. As you emphasize different words, the Spirit shows you new and different things. You have to read the, listen to the Scriptures patiently. It's going to take time. When you sit down with your Bible, don't plan to be going somewhere else. You're now on God's agenda. He'll take care of everything else. You need to abide. You need to stay with the Holy Spirit with the intent of being there for a while. We don't worship a drive-through God who takes your order and then delivers what you want. Be patient with the text. Be patient with yourself. Relax and enjoy the ride. Going to the Bible should be a time of joy for you, not a time of frustration. It's okay if you don't understand it all. Keep reading. You'll understand more the next time. The next way we listen is imaginatively. Now, I don't mean that we insert things that aren't there. What I mean is... We have to begin to imagine what's going on. We have to see the sights. We have to smell the smells. We have to put ourselves in the text. What was it like to be there when this letter was read to the church? What was it like to be there when Jesus came into town? We have to connect with the emotions of the text. Moses on Mount Nebo, looking over a promised land he had hoped to go to for 40 years and the emotion of realizing that God's not going to let him go and that he's going to die. Joshua, standing there with the weight of of the entire Israel nation on his shoulders as he begins to enter a promised land. Feel what they feel. Look at the perspective from different people that are there. Look at the moments in human history. Look at the story from their perspective, like the crucifixion. Look Look at it from the perspective of Mary. What was that like? stand there and watch your son. From Jesus' perspective, from the other people on the crosses, from the guards' perspective, from the passerbys, from the crowd, from Pilate, the typical Jewish person in Rome that day, the Roman people that day, Caiaphas, the high priest, Peter who denied Jesus, Judas who betrayed him. Look at that picture that day, that moment from all their perspectives. The shepherd boys who now 30 years later, Go back and remember the day that that man was born and the angels appeared to them. James, his brother, who was not yet a believer. Think about what he was doing on the day of crucifixion. Arimathea, who provided the tomb, Nicodemus, who helped bury him, the other disciples. John was there, but the others were hiding. Take some time to slow down and think about everybody involved in that moment and view that moment from different perspectives. We also have to listen meditatively. We have to take time to reflect. God's Word tells us that we need to meditate on the Word. Now, I'm not talking about sitting cross-legs going, hmm, all the time. But God's Word encourages us to reflect on the text. Spend more time thinking, more time reflecting, and less time reading. I am not a fan, just so you know, of let's read through the Bible in a year. I would rather you take one verse or a couple verses and study them for a week and let that verse soak and let that verse penetrate and let that verse apply to what you're going through right now and let that verse be an answer for you. And all day long for seven straight days, just play that verse over and over in your head and every day ask the Holy Spirit to show you something new that you haven't seen before. And at the end of that year, you'll have 52 verses that you know really well that you can apply in life's circumstances. And after five years, you have over 300 verses that you spent time on and you've tied them to what you're going through and therefore emotion is tied to it. You don't have to memorize it because you've lived it. God tells us in Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. Why do you meditate on it? Not to gain understanding, but to apply the understanding that you're going to get. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yield its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. For it is ever with me. I have more understanding than my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold my, back my feet from every way in order to keep your word. I did not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And the last way we're to listen is purposefully. We're not just reading to check off our to-do list for the day. We're not just getting through a passage so we can check the box and says we're reading through the Bible in a certain amount of time. We're reading because we have real issues that need real answers and we need a very real God to show us what he really wants us to know. That's why you're opening the book. Every one of us is in a laboratory of life and God is using the circumstances of our life to move us to depend on him. And the way we depend on him is we realize that we have a struggle and we need help. And so we go to the Bible, God, help me see what I need to see. I'm struggling. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit says, I'm glad you finally showed up. We've been waiting for you to quit wrestling on your own and to let us help you. And the Holy Spirit shows you a verse. You didn't expect to see it. It almost lights up like neon. And he says, this is what I want you to focus on. Oh, you don't want me to read through the Bible? No, no. I want you to focus on these three verses and actually apply them to this situation. Now you're beginning to see the book as a tool of life, not something you just have to do. We're not reading to get details and information, although the details and information point us to what God wants us to see. The purpose of this book and the purpose of studying it is to grow more like Christ. When you pick up the book, plan to listen to it. Plan to listen to the Holy Spirit and always pick up the book with purpose. So once we've listened to what the Holy Spirit wants to show us, we have to look and see what's in the text. What do we look for? Maybe you read your Bible and you're like, you know what, I have looked at it. But I wanna encourage you to look deeper. Because no matter how deep you go, it gets deeper. Jesus taught us in ways that were deeper than anybody had ever seen before. God uses patterns and emphasis of words to point you to the gold. There are things in the text that can show you deeper meaning if you pay attention to them. They're like signs that tell you, pay attention. The art of Bible reading is seeing. What makes one person a better student of the Bible than somebody else? I mean, think about that. They have the same text. They have the same Holy Spirit. What makes them different? Experience. They know how to see the Bible. They know what to look for. One of the greatest skills in reading the Bible is to be able to see both what's there and what's not there and what you would have expected to be there. Let's look at this image. How many squares do you see? How many squares are there? 16, I hear 16. People like 16? More than 16. I hear 21. Look deeper. Look deeper, I haven't heard it yet. Keep going. There are 30 squares. In that picture, 30. Okay, I'll show you the math. You can look at this later and agree or disagree. Let's go to the next slide. There you go. What you initially see is not what's there. You have to spend time. You have to analyze. You have to think. So what are we looking for when we open God's Word? When we open the book, what are the clues... That tell us to stay there and focus deeper. Everybody's looking at this thing. Keep counting. All right. We're gonna look in total at six things, but today I'm only gonna cover three of them so you're off the hook. Six ways that we look at scripture. We look for things that repeat, we look for things that compare, we look for things that contrast, we look for things that connect. We look for things that communicate and things that emphasize. We're going to look at three of these today. We're going to look at the other three next week. Great storytellers repeat things. They repeat in order to bring emphasis to help the audience remember the story. They have an idea. They have something they want you to walk away remembering. And they know that if they repeat it over and over, eventually you'll remember it. It's not just in biblical terms, it's in all great speeches and all great writing. And even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream rooted in the American dream, a dream that I have one day that this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that on one day in the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Martin Luther King continues, I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering in the heat of injustice, sweltering in the heat of oppression, and transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice, I have a dream that one day my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Great writers repeat the key messages. And the same thing happens in scripture. We know this because repetition is the backbone of advertising. If I want you to remember something, I just got to get it in front of you over and over and over. When I'm saying just do it, Or I'm loving it. You know what that means. You know the brand because you've heard it so many times. It's been repeated. Hearing the same thing over and over helps you remember it. And it can build associations for you to recall it later. On a broad scale, if you look at the entire Bible, it repeats itself several times. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each book does the same thing. They all record the life, the miracles, the death, the resurrection of Jesus from four different perspectives. It's repetition on a large scale. But why? Why does the New Testament contain four books that describe the same sequence of events? Well, it allows us to remember the story. First, the use of repetition in the Bible usually emphasizes the importance of a person, a theme, or an event. It makes sense for the Gospels because this is the story of Jesus' ministry and his mission to the world. Second, repetition of the Gospels offers greater credibility. In the ancient world, legal testimonies were considered valid if they could be substantiated by two or three witnesses. Having four Gospels validates in many ways the authenticity of the writers. Third, the use of replication of the the Gospels allowed the biblical authors to approach Jesus from different angles and different perspectives, highlighting what they wanted the audience to see about what he did. There are many other examples of broad repeats throughout the Bible. For example, the Ten Commandments are repeated in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 because of their critical importance. Likewise, the Old Testament repeats large parts of the entire book. For example, Kings and Chronicles. When you read Kings and Chronicles, you feel like you're reading the same book. And you're like, why are they repeating this? I just read this. If you ever have tried to read the Bible through in one year, this is where people get bogged down because they get to one of them, and it's like, I just read this and the other one. What you don't realize, maybe, is that First and Second Kings were written before Israel's exile to Babylon. Whereas 1 and 2 Chronicles were written after they returned back to their homeland. And you can compare the two and you can see the difference between their attitudes when they were in one place versus another. The thing you need to realize is that large portions of Scripture are not repeated by accident. They didn't come about because God decided to cut and paste. They're repeated for a reason because the text serves a purpose. The Bible also contains several examples where repeated phrases, themes, or ideas, usually to emphasize a person or an element. So when you're reading the Bible, look for things that repeat. Does the author intentionally repeat something? Why is that word repeated? Is it repeated in sequence or is it repeated throughout the text? You have to remember that most of these folks didn't have a Bible to carry around. They had to remember what was taught. Imagine how we would do if on Wednesday I came to you and said, tell me what I taught about on Sunday. I don't remember what I taught about on Sunday. Look at what God told Moses. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God saying, I'm the Lord your God. In Genesis, he says it this way, I'll establish my covenant between you and me and your offspring through generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. In Leviticus, I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. Numbers 15, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Jeremiah 7, But I command, I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people and walk in the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Ezekiel 36, you shall dwell in the land I give to your fathers and you will be my people and I will be your God. What do you think God wants us to know? You are my people and I'm your God. It's repeated throughout Scripture. I'll tell you all the time, there are themes that run through Scripture or I'll tell you, this is repeated over and over throughout Scripture. God wants us to know You are my people, I will be your God. Sometimes the entire story repeats. Have you ever noticed like you're reading along and it's it's like, you know, something happens and then he tells the story in the next paragraph and says the exact thing he said before? Ten Commandments, God telling the Israelites, I'll be your God. But if the writer wants to make it really obvious, the greatest way you can show emphasis in Hebrew text and Greek is to make the repetition obvious. And the number of times a word is repeated is critical too. Three being the magic number. It was the number of perfection. Revelation 21, 27, or sorry, 4.8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're not saying God is three times holy. What they're saying is holy, capitalized, bold, italic, underlined, highlighted, printed, bigger font, he's holy. That's what they're trying to tell you. Ezekiel 21, 27, a ruin, ruin, ruin I will make. Anytime something's repeated three times, God's serious about it. More so, well, he's serious about everything, but serious about it. Jeremiah, oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. People of Israel, listen. Peter denied Jesus three times. Three repeats, and Jesus asked Peter if he loved him three times, three affirmations. Other times, things repeat within the phrase or throughout a passage. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of the Lords for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. The writer continues that phrase 26 times. I think he wants us to remember that his love endures forever. Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And Jesus continues throughout the Beatitudes. Blessed are. Second Corinthians 1, verse 3 through 7. Sometimes two words are repeated to show you contrast. If you don't notice the repeat, you miss the message. So let's pay attention to this. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, those who Christ, we shall share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings, you will share in our comfort. The two words here contrasted, comfort and suffering. Those words don't usually go together. But with God, they do. And what the Spirit wants us to see is that we find comfort in suffering and suffering in comfort. And it's part of our experience. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is used throughout the entire book of 1 John to represent the worldly thought. Love is repeated throughout the entire book of 1 John. Repeating those things is John wanting us to see that there's two kinds of love, the love of the world and the love of God. He's contrasting those two, and he wants you to see the repetition that you have to choose one or the other, the love of the world or the love of God. Why do they repeat things? When I repeat stories, people tell me that I've already told them that. (laughs) You already did that. You already preached that. You already said that. Well, you just heard this. Okay, all right, I'm getting senile. It's okay. In English, adverbs are common. We talked about this last night, so I'll just jump on my bandwagon. Adverbs usually have an L-Y after them. Okay? We, We don't... Hit a golf ball solid, we hit it solidly. Okay, they have, okay, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. There's not really adverbs in Hebrew and Greek. You see, when we want to describe the intensity of something, we use things like sad, sadder, saddest, right? Or holy, holier, holiest. They don't have words like that. In Hebrew, there aren't different words to describe intensity. They use the word multiple times to tell you of the intensity. They're repeating the words to tell you the words are important because they don't have a word that says more than that. And when we get to lists, you're going to understand, I hope, that when they make lists, the first one is the most. The second one is a little less. The third one is a little less, and it moves on like that. So they're repeating things because they don't know how to tell you more than what you think. He's holy. No, no, he's he's holiest, but I can't tell you that. So I'm going to tell you he's holy, holy, holy. We also see this when we get to lists, and we're going to see the same thing. In general, we see things repeat in Scripture for three reasons. One, to emphasize Jesus Christ. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John serve to emphasize the truth of Christ's existence, his life, his ministry. We hear his account from four different people. We also hear it from Paul and David and Isaiah and even Moses confirm his identity. Second reason things are repeated is to remind us of God's promises. We have a limited memory. We're forgetful. God knows that. We might forget his promises, but he won't. And he repeats them to us so that we'll remember. Third thing is to remind us of what God has done. When God did great things in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, people built altars so that the future generations would always remember the great thing that God did on that spot in that moment. Repeating things in Scripture is like building an altar to what God has done. It shows people something important happened here. God did something miraculous here. Things repeated in the Bible are like specks of gold that come down the river. They tell you that if you persist and you abide and you think about what's being repeated, God's got some gold to show you coming. Never ignore things that are repeated in Scripture. When you see them, start praying. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you why He repeated those words of Scripture. Remember, no word is there by accident. It takes work to write down a word on papyrus or papyrus, depending on where you come from. When something's repeated, there's a reason for it. It's like a sign that God puts in the scriptures that says, Gold is here, look deeper. The next thing we'll see in scripture, other than repeating, is when something's compared. When we compare items or individuals or concepts, look for words like like or as. Does the author compare things? When you see something that's compared, nothing's chosen by accident. Comparisons are invitations for you to meditate. Let me give you an example. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. What's this verse mean? As a deer pants for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for you. Like a deer plants for flowing streams, my soul pants for you, God. You can read this and move on. You get the picture, right? No, you don't. Let me show it to you. It's an invitation to meditate. How does a deer pant for water? Why flowing water? Why a deer and not some other animal? Why pant and not seeks, desires, looks, or needs? Why did he say pants? David is the writer of this psalm. He spent a lot of time out in the wilderness. We know from a young age that he fought a lion and a bear and he survived. But deer are docile animals. I have them in my neighborhood. I drove past six on the way here today. Not one of them's panting. They're just looking around. They don't do anything. They just look. They walk around. They jump over the little things. They move through the streets very slowly. They're not panting. I've never seen any of our deers pant. What's David talking about? In the wild, deer are delicacy for lions. Lions love to eat deer. In the wild, when a lion spots a deer, he gives the deer a chase. The deer runs at high speed until, if lucky, he can outrun the predator who gives up the chase. At this point, the deer is exhausted, short of breath, gasping, and panting. Deer are fast, they can leap, they can run for a long time, but they cannot handle heat very well. Panting is their way of cooling down. So, when a deer is chased, like an athlete who just finished a race, all he wants is water. It's the most important thing. If it doesn't get water, the predator chases again and it'll submit to death. So when it pants for water, it's literally dying to find the water. That's how David wants our soul to pant after God, the living God, the true God. Satan is attacking us. We need to run to God like a deer, panting, to get God to protect us, to provide for us, to to give us shelter, because we're going to get killed if we don't get to God because Satan is chasing us. That's why a deer pants for water. Deer and dogs do not need to be trained to pant. They don't need to be trained to drink water. The thirst of our soul for God comes naturally to us as well. We should know that we need to run to God. So why does the deer go to running water? Why not just water? Well, it turns out if a deer can run through running water, its scent goes away for a while. And the predator can't find it. Comparisons invite you to meditate, to ask questions, to learn more about the Scripture. I promise you, you probably will not think about a deer panting for water the same as you did this morning. Because those things, that comparison has made you slow down and think and ask questions. Sometimes you find yourself in Wikipedia. What's so unique about a deer? Why did they choose a deer? He could have chosen any animal. I should pant for God like a deer pants for water. I'm being chased by Satan. I'm helpless. If I don't get to the living water, I'm going to die. I need his spirit to throw off the scent of my sins. I need to be cleansed. And then what happens is you begin to think about other verses like this one. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He said this about the spirit who believed in him who were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not glorified. When I run to Jesus, when I run to God, He seals me in the Holy Spirit and Satan can't touch me anymore. He covers the scent of my sins with his righteousness. As I flow, let the living water flow through me. I never have to run from Satan again the rest of my life. In Christ, we become like a deer that a lion can't touch. A deer that defeats a lion. A deer that becomes something totally new. Comparisons are inviting you to spend time, to slow down, to think about it. They're flecks of gold. If you just pay attention to why they chose that and pray through it, the Holy Spirit will show you why. And there are different kinds of comparisons. Sometimes it's a direct comparison. John three fourteen, And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 1 Peter 2, so put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy and slander like newborn infants. Long for pure spiritual milk that uh, that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Spend some time thinking about what a baby does when it doesn't get fed. Just think about it. They cry, they scream. They're inconsolable. They're desperate to have their need met. They don't know how to express what they need. They don't even really know what they need. They just know something's wrong, and it needs to be fixed. And there's a drive in them, a hunger that tells them it needs to be fixed. It needs to be fixed right now, and I don't know what I need to do, but I'm going to scream until it happens. Like that, you need to know the Word of God. Like that, God says, we need to crave spiritual milk. I don't even know what I need, but I know I need God. I don't know what to do to get it, but I'm going to be here until God shows it to me, and I'm going to keep pursuing until He tells me what I need to know, and that need is satisfied. The third thing are metaphors. Or, sorry, after direct confession, metaphor. These are implied comparisons. I'm the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Okay? Spend some time. What does a vine dresser do? How do they take care of the vine? What's their responsibility? James 3.3, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide the whole body as well. Look at ships. They're large, they're driven by strong winds, but they're guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will, the pilot decides. The tongue is the same, he says. That's interesting. So my tongue represents in many ways my will. My tongue takes me to where I want to go. It's small, but it guides me. Word pictures help us understand the power of the tongue. And then there's a thing called an allegory. An allegory is an image that sets up a deeper meaning. Galatians 4, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of slaves was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free... Woman was born through promise. And then God tells you, here's how you're supposed to interpret this. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Thank you, God. You're now teaching us how to read the Bible. These women are two covenants. One's from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. God's telling us there's two covenants represented by two women, by two nations, by two groups of people. One covenant is under Christ in the covenants. The other is under slavery and not of Christ. And then sometimes we see contrasts, things that contrast in the Bible. Look for the word but. Buts are really big in the Bible. And there are some big buts in the Bible. It's one of the most important words you'll see in Scripture. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous finds refuge in his death. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. You see contrasts, and the word but tells you to pay attention to these two things. Here's a huge but, Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Huge but. Here's the biggest but in the Bible, I think. The Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made him. But Noah walked with God. Why are we here? Because Noah walked with God. Why did God not start over? Because Noah walked with God when no one else did. That's the contrast he wants you to see. Obviously, the question is, are you going to walk with God when nobody else is? So we're working our way through content. What do we see in the scriptures? We read through the text to feel the emotion. We listen, we look. We listen in seven ways, thoughtfully, thoroughly, repeatedly, patiently, imaginatively, meditatively, and purposefully. We look for six things. What does the word repeat? What does it compare? What does it contrast? Next week, we'll look at how does the word connect? How does it communicate? What does it emphasize? You will not see all these things in all the passages. But when you see them, stop and pay attention to them. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you something. So for instance, let's just say you took as a deer pants for water. You're not going to sit there and instantly get the answer. God's going to make you walk through that scripture maybe for weeks. God, show me something about a deer. What do I need to see about a deer? How does that reflect what I need to know? As you learn about a deer, you learn a little bit deeper. So you ask God, is there something else I'm supposed to notice? And you meditate on these scriptures as you're standing in the line or as you're going through your day, as you're doing things. What is it about a deer? Like flecks of gold in the pan, he just begins to reveal, oh, you're going to stay on this verse? You really want to know? Oh, okay, well, I don't give up gold to the lazy, and remember, my purpose here is not to explain deer to you. My purpose is to abide with you and spend time with you, See, because I'm God, and I want to be with you more than I want to teach you. So sit here for a while. We'll talk about deer. I'll show you some things. I started this series telling you about my patient, Ned, 94 years old from Wickenburg, Arizona, who panned for gold his entire life. And he said the reason he panned for gold is he knew the gold was there. And he knew the thrill of finding it. How do you find gold? You have to believe it's there. Otherwise, you won't persist. You have to be willing to put the effort in to find it. And you need to slow down. Slow down. Let people teach you how to see what's there. Slow down and pay attention to a scripture. Be patient. Take time. Learn to be patient. It'll start out looking like Monet's picture. It will start out looking like Monet's picture. This is what scripture looks like. Initially, you look at it and you go, what in the world is that? And your first thought is, I'll just keep walking, I'll just go away, I'm never going to understand this. But then, as you begin to ask the Holy Spirit to show you things you've never seen before, that text starts to become clearer, the vision becomes more clear, and all of a sudden you begin to discover this book is a treasure. And the Holy Spirit's showing you what's really there, and you see it much clearly now. This book is a treasure. We have to dig for gold. And the question for each of us is, do you believe it's there? Do you really want to find it? And are you willing to find it for yourself? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you gave us your word. You wanted us to have your truth. You wanted us to have your word. You revealed to yourself to us in this word. But you created it in a very unique way. This book can be read as a history book. Those who read it think they're experts on it. But to those who have the Holy Spirit, the words are life. We feed on it. You reveal to those who are willing to pursue deeper truths, you bring understanding and meaning to those who are willing to abide and ask questions and sit and think. God, help us to be people who reflect on your word as much as we read it, who seek the Holy Spirit's instruction as much as we seek to check our to-do list. God, I pray for each of us that you teach us how to begin to dig for ourselves, to find the gold that's there, to recognize the flecks that are coming through and to know the gold's coming and to persevere. God, I pray for all the dusty Bibles in the world that you would change the circumstances of everybody to go to them. Help us, God, to be desperate for you like a deer pants for water because we are being chased and we are being destroyed. We love you. We thank you for all that you give us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.